in looking at Reformation Month, Reformation Day, and thinking about some of the things that we could talk about, uh, I was going to speak about Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and their dealings with the Lord's Supper, uh, but in thinking about some of the practical things that could be taken as a result of the sermon from Second Kings, I thought we would talk about Reformation in general and what Luther and Calvin did in not instituting a gradual Reformation, but once they learned the basic principles that were recaptured as a result of them being eclipsed by the Roman Catholic Church, that it was, it was a forceful conviction that pressed them to play out how the Reformation demonstrated it in its history. I'd like to use Colossians chapter 2 and verse 23 as a springboard of sorts. Colossians chapter 2, verse 23, which says, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. I want to remind us all how true biblical reformation played out in the history of the Reformation and the nature or course that Reformation took under the guidance of able men such as Luther and Calvin by comparing the nature of true biblical Reformation in action an individual reformation so that individual reformation would come more readily in seeing how things worked out through history. You should be aware, gradual reformation is always and was always to the reformers intolerable, so to speak. You'll understand what we mean as I move a little bit through this. It's intolerable to those of us who love the Word of God. If you love the Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity and strive to uphold the Word of God in your life, in your family, and as an individual before Jesus, you wouldn't take sound, important doctrines and believe them sort of. You wouldn't take basic foundational truths and ideas and partially live them out. Or... If we did, it would simply be a matter of sin to us to not hold them as Josiah did, as we talked about this morning, in thoroughly reforming ourselves and conforming to the Word of God. The European Reformation embodies the biblical guide to the nature of true reform and convictions that are needful towards an authentic transformation of a corrupt church into a holy body. That's what they wanted to do. They didn't want to separate from the Roman Catholic Church right off the bat. They wanted to take the truths and implement them and have everybody believe them. We should be aware that the notion of a gradual reformation is at best intolerable because it would take those truths and as you'll see, wouldn't make radical changes. It would make things that were 
easy to swallow. It would take things and compromise on them specifically so that they would be palatable and over a long period of time maybe we could infiltrate some of those ideas and change them over a period of time where the reformers said, this is what the Word of God teaches. This is what we'll implement now. They wanted to instill truth into it and capture or recapture the virtue that had been lost under spiritual degeneracy. After true biblical reformation had begun, the Roman Catholic Church could not escape such changes. The reformers knew that in order to reestablish the virtues of biblical Christianity, they had to take some of these things and as a result, just place them in front of them and say, this is what the Word of God says. This is what the Word of God teaches. We then have to take these things, which is the biblical gospel, and we are obliged to uphold it. Not in part, but in whole. They wanted to go back to the biblical ideas of the regulative principle in worship. They wanted to go back to the biblical principles of church discipline. They wanted to understand the right administration of the sacraments. They wanted to, in other words, take something like worship and restore it, just as Josiah had done when he had faced the Word of God. And it wasn't something that they should gradually work into. It would be like saying, we have the understanding of the Lord's Supper or the understanding of how right church discipline should be taken or the deity of Jesus Christ and implement only parts of that or pieces of it just enough to begin to make certain small changes or compromise the doctrine altogether to make it palatable for people to understand and take in. They weren't thinking that way at all. It was a command to worship in a certain way. It was biblical doctrine to believe certain things about the Lord's Supper. It was uh, important to the Reformers. It was a conviction of the Reformers that God had so commanded His people, so they should obey what He has commanded. It was rather simpler, more easy to understand than more difficult. It's the same thing as with lying. Imagine if a man is a compulsive liar. He should, should he gradually change or should he repent of his lying? Would it be acceptable to God to lie a little while he got used to the notion of not lying? Or does God require men to repent of their sin? There was a movie in, uh, I believe it was the beginning of this year, called Amazing Grace, that William Wilberforce has shown over his 15-year attempt to abolish slavery in England. And the slave trade had grown so wicked that freighting ships would take on more slaves in their hulls than they were allowed by double the amount or over. Uh, 600 to 800 slaves, people, would die on the journey home. And while recounting all the horrific statistics of these trade ships, Wilberforce attempted time and time again over a 15-year span to have Parliament abolish slavery. Now, in the course of all of this, they bring out this one particular point in the film where this one man who was teetering on a middle position of sorts stood up and agreed with Wilberforce that slavery should be abolished, but only gradually. Now, how does one take into the account the atrocity of the slave trade that was going on and all of these people dying to desire a gradual dismissal of it 
over a long period of time. It's the idea that we could gradually reform the church over a long period of time. That might sound really good. Isn't that what we want to do? We want to gradually reform the church over a long period of time in order to bring it to those uh, true biblical principles. But why didn't Josiah do that as we talked about earlier today? Why didn't he say, okay, we've got all of these things that we need to do, all of these things that we're doing now, and we need to stop doing those things and start doing these things. Well, let's just do it gradually. We won't take down all the Asher folks. We won't kill all the priests. We won't thoroughly reform everything. Instead, we'll just piece by piece, we'll begin to do that. It doesn't really work that way. There's a difference between teaching the people of God the basic principles of the Word over time or the Bible as a whole over time and these ideas of reformation and what reformation really is. Gradual reformation has never been the matrix in which the church has functioned since its inception in the Garden of Eden at any time. Every time you see change take place, God doesn't say, okay now, over the next 50 years, I want you to slowly teach the people how to not lie. He, he just doesn't do that. He institutes the commandment and says the people are to conform to the command. Now, in various New Testament epistles, there's a tenderness in which reformation should be accomplished. And even in some instances, there are elementary doctrines that have to be taught again because people forget things and we understand those things. But it is often a tragedy that churches at various points in their spirituality cannot bear to hear certain doctrines or ideas lest they become overwhelmed because of their inadequacy in understanding the Bible. And it's not on little things. It's not like maybe the lineage of the kings and being able to recite those from the Old Testament. It's things like, how do we worship? How do we view baptism and the Lord's Supper? How do we view church discipline? How do we view the deity of Jesus Christ? In beginning to teach elementary doctrines again, it doesn't infer that the foundations of basic principles be abandoned in order to accommodate people in the church, covenant people, maybe in their waywardness. It's the opinions of the reformers that a context for teaching biblically sound doctrine is only found in a church that desires to lay down the principles of a biblical reformation. They want to reform and follow God and then advance in biblical teaching from those basic fundamental principles. But if we don't have the fundamental principles, or we don't like the fundamental principles, the other things are never going to come, and it's going to take the church forever, or if ever, to hold to those basic ideas. What does it mean to reform something? Webster's Dictionary says, quote, a 16th century religious movement marked ultimately by rejection or modification of some Roman Catholic doctrine and practice and establishment of Protestant churches, end quote. It's the state, according to it, of being reformed. Next definition. To put or change into an improved form or condition. So it takes something that could be improved and improves it. To amend or improve by change of form or removal of faults or abuses. Or to put an end to an evil by enforcing or introducing a better method of course of action. 
So, to reform something is to take the evil ways and reform them or change them to move, which even in, even in just understanding what Reformation is as a movement, it was a religious movement. Something was moving, something was happening, something was changing in order to amend and introduce something better. In terms of the Reformation, as in the 16th century, it's the abandonment and repudiation of evil or wicked devices of men instituted in the church through false doctrines and to establish, change, and amend those ways by the immediate interposition of improved change to the foundations of truth found in Scripture. That's a mouthful. In simpler terminology, they returned to sound doctrine. They returned to the truth that was eclipsed by sin and ignorance. And it was not accomplished gradually, which is the important point. Let's look at Luther. In considering the biblical actions of Luther in Germany, we find almost an instantaneous imposition of reform. Almost instantaneous. Now, for Luther, maybe about two years, studying, learning, locked away in his study, teaching constantly. Students would come from everywhere. He was teaching at Wittenberg. Yet, once those things were implanted in his mind and traveled down to his heart, so to speak. He wrote down his 95 theses. He pinned it on the door. And right then and there, the next day, perfect timing, so to speak, this learned doctor of theology, his fame spread almost, in, almost overnight as a result. They took it down. They translated it from Latin into the common language of the people, and it went everywhere. And suddenly... This, what they called this new and modern way of another sort, stood in place of the status quo. The status quo was shaken. And just as Jesus began his public ministry with the expulsion of those profane traffickers in the court of the temple, if you recall, so Luther began his ministry by preaching and lecturing against relics and indulgences, things that the church were, was abusing. And he desired to rid, to rid the Roman church of false doctrine. He didn't want to rid the church. He wanted to rid the bad theology that was in the church so that it could be reformed and changed. The official statement to this didn't come long afterwards in that thesis once Luther got a hold of it. Once he understood it, once Romans was read and studied and taught, he hung his theses on the door. He couldn't do anything else. He had to do something. He had to tell the people. The Reformation began with a public protest against the traffic of indulgences that profaned and degraded the Christian religion. They were selling salvation. Can't, you, you can't do that, Luther said. Here's what the Scripture says. One historian says, after serious deliberation, without consulting any of his colleagues or friends, but following an irresistible impulse, Luther resolved upon a public act of unforeseen consequences. He didn't even know how big his uproar would be. And his desire wasn't to break off from the church, but to debate in the accepted manner in that time on the questions raised by his thesis. 
not first. Pope Leo X, the Pope at the time, he didn't really care. He was a drunken monk, making lots of noise, uh, you know, didn't really care about the theses, sort of dismissed it. But when Luther's reforms began to reach into the pocket of the Pope, that's when he got upset. Leo wanted him silenced because by stopping the indulgences, he wasn't getting the cash that was coming in as a result of the preaching of people like Tetzel and others who were selling indulgences for the good of the church in order to build St. Peter's Basilica, this large church that the Pope wanted to build as a result. The fact that such a document was made public and pinned on a church door attests to the crucial move that this was not done in secret. Religion is private. You hear people say that. Religion is private. It's not private. God doesn't want things to be private. God wants everybody to conform to what His Word says. There are no pretenses in Luther's actions at all. Reformation makes men bold in God's power and grace. So what was Luther's response to Rome's desire for him to stop preaching those things after the thesis was published? Well, with what, he, what Luther called, with the stroke of an axe, the Reformation began. But was there a lapse in its continuation? Did it suddenly just stop as a result? Now, Luther's mind was bound by the Word of God, and unless he could be convinced of his errors from the Scripture... By its authority, he wouldn't change his course. Even the theses read, quote, I implore all men by the faith of Christ either to point out to me a better way, if such a way is divinely revealed to any, or at least to submit their opinion to the judgment of God and the church. If I'm wrong, tell me I'm wrong. Show me from Scripture that I'm wrong. If not, conform. That's what he said. In attempting to silence Luther, Pope Leo had a gentleman by the name of Prierius write a, quote, crushing blow to his theses. The Roman Catholic Church always had this uh, habit of raising somebody up to write against one of the reformers with crushing blows. And Luther replied and corresponded, but it didn't matter even at that time. It didn't matter what Luther said. At that time, they were going to already brand him as a heretic. And he commanded him to appear in Rome within 60 days to recant of his heresies. And so Luther met with the cordial greet of Cajetan three times, this other archbishop. And Cajetan attempted to dissuade Luther through a very cordial friendship. You don't want to really stir things up. Why do you want to do all of the Wasn't that, is the scripture true? Is that you don't really want to do some of these things. Cajetan ultimately threatened him with excommunication. Having already in his hand the papal mandate to be able to do that. Sort of in his back pocket. If Luther wasn't going to do what he wanted him to do, he was going to pull it out and say, look, we're going to have to excommunicate you if you don't follow through with what we're telling you. And he was dismissed when Cajetan told him, quote, revoke or do not come into my presence again. Luther didn't bend. Rather, he escaped that night, rode back to Wittenberg. Was, is that really the ploy of a gradual reformation? Shouldn't we sort of buddy up with Cajetan and, and sort of give in, maybe rub shoulders with the Pope a little bit and, and work some of these differences out? Isn't that what Luther should have done? Then he was called to the Diet of Worms. And another attempt was made to silence Luther when the Pope sent a gentleman by the name of Karl von Miltitz to meet with him in order to aid him in recanting his heresy. And after the meeting, 
Miltitz seemed to believe that he made headway with Luther, yet Luther never thought once of recanting his ideas. Luther did write a very humble letter to the Pope expressing his desire to reform the church, but never to recant, to stop, to go backwards, never. At the same time, the Pope had a papal bull drawn up which demanded his recantation or his excommunication and death. That was his choice. Luther's response to this was a public gathering of students and of the faculty at Wittenberg to witness the burning of the papal bull upon reception of it. And so the implementations of these acts don't lend itself, history doesn't lend itself to a gradual reformation in that way, but to a reformation that imposed restriction and reaction against false doctrine. And in no way and at no time could Luther go back to the false doctrine that he had been raised on as a monk just to appease them? Certainly not. Gradual reformation in any way is intolerable to the truth, as it was who, to Luther himself who stood upon the word. And the doctrines of grace, the doctrines of justification, how could Luther recant of those things? Never. One church historian says, quote, Henceforth, the doctrine of justification by faith alone was for him, that's Luther, to the end of the life, the sum and substance of the gospel, the heart of theology, the central truth of Christianity, the article of the standing or falling of the church. So if it is, how could one compromise on those things? He was called before Charles V, and Luther was summoned to Wittenberg, and he was only asked two questions. He was asked in German, and he was asked in Latin, just in case he missed it. And the two questions were, are these your writings, and will you recant them? And Luther asked for time in order to reply. Some of the movies that you might see may see him shake his fist and go, I will not recant. That's not what happened. He asked for time to gather his thoughts. Now, some would say, ooh, see, here he is. He's going to graduate. He's going to compromise maybe a little bit, see what might happen here. What's Luther doing? He went to his room that night. It was spent in prayer in order to answer them in a manner in which would be glorifying to God. Luther had no intentions of recanting, ever. One historian says, quote, On the same evening, Luther rec uh, recollected himself and wrote to a friend. He wrote a letter, quote, I shall not retract one iota, so Christ help me. He wanted to go back and just put his thoughts down in such a way so that he could answer, which is the epitome of the rejection of a gradual reformation. Quote, Unless I am refuted and convinced by testimonies of Scripture or by clear argument, since I believe neither the Pope nor the councils alone, it being evident that they are often erred and contradicted themselves, I am conquered by the Holy Scriptures quoted by me and my conscience is bound to the Word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything since it is unsafe and dangerous to do anything against conscience. His conscience was bound by the Word. He couldn't do anything else. If Luther really desired to win their affections and appease their consciences, he would have thrown aside the Scriptures, bowed down to the Emperor, and that would have been it. Instead, he recapitulated Christ's words. If I have spoken evil, bear witness of me. Testify to his solid stance on the Word. If it's evil, prove me wrong. Show me by Scripture. Demonstrate it. So there was a doctrinal break made with the Roman Catholic Church. They sent all sorts of people to try to 
deal with Luther. John Eck, Catholic theologian. Even, uh, even Luther debated the Swiss reformer Zwingli on the meaning of the Lord's Supper. But Luther was not going to back down in any way, shape, or form. And many of his reforms were reactionary, and many of them were instilled overnight. And it's historically impossible to call the German reformer gradual in anything that he did. The reader of history has to come to grips to see and notice that the same movement that Luther made mimicked the work of Josiah. He did what Josiah did. He said, these things are wrong. We can't believe them anymore. We have to believe what's right. Now, it could be in the whole scheme of church history that Luther was an anomaly and nobody else was like him. could be that. We could speculate. We would speculate wrong, though. If we look at Calvin, for example, let's look at Calvin for a moment. In the Swiss Reformation, the writings of Calvin are preeminent. And the work of Calvin in his tract, which is called The Necessity of Reforming the Church, and this is one of his most famous tracts, is the best treatment explaining his rejection of a gradual reformation over an actual true biblical reformation. His work is readily accessible. You can, you can go on the Internet, I think, and find it. And you could buy books. Uh, they've reprinted it a number of times. It's exemplary of true biblical reformation. And there were, during the time of the Reformation, many places in many different ways of extremes that should be avoided. There were things that the Anabaptists did that I think some of the Swiss councils were a little bit over the edge on. The execution of Servetus, uh, some of the abusive imprisonments that Geneva actually imposed upon people who were too lavishly dressed. If you were too lavishly dressed, the religious police would catch you and throw you in prison in Geneva and you would have to spend a night or two. Well, Calvin, though, wanted to see true biblical reform to take place, especially in the regulative principle in the church, because that was a big thing. Coming to worship God, coming to the place of worship, coming to give God honor, that wasn't something that he wanted to see gradually take place over a period of 50 years. Something rather based on the Word of God, he wanted to implant it there and then. Why is so Calvin so adamant to press immediate reform instead of gradual reform? Where every area of worship that's overthrown by the devices of men becomes void of worship because it ends up being some kind of religious syncretism. It's not really what God said. For instance, the Lord's Supper had been violently corrupted in the Mass in Calvin's day. And it was really turned into, quote, this is what Calvin calls it, a theatrical exhibition. So when the priests got up there and they did their magic, it was a theatrical exhibition. He said it was resembled more by magical arts than testifying to the significance and truth of the Supper. So it ceased to be worship. It wasn't worship anymore. And became an exercise in futility, much like the estranged view of Zwingli's memorialism and his view of the Lord's Supper, which went to the opposite end of the spectrum, which took the meaning completely out of the Supper. So 
What are the remedies to overthrow sin within the church? According to Calvin, there must be an immediate return to the legitimate worship of God and the ground of salvation, end quote, which is what he was all about. Immediate return. Not, hey, listen, we, we do understand what the Lord's Supper teaches now. Maybe 20, 25 years from now, we'll start to implement that and see how it goes. You know, let's, let's do things gradually. Let's not teach the people yet. Let's see if we can get a couple, let's see if we can convince the Pope first. And we'll go from there. That's not what they did. Calvin wanted to expel everything in worship that was not prescribed by God in the Bible. Unless, it, either by necessary inference or by his command. No idolatry, no prayers to the saints, no transubstantiation, no vestment, nothing. Anything that was not in the scripture was out. Boy, you know, that's, that's really going to affect the Roman Catholic Church negatively. I mean, that would be my guess. If I was, uh, you know, with Calvin in his study, and he was going to tell me that 90% of what the church was teaching, he was going to throw out, I would have probably said, you know, for the good of the church, you may not want to do that right away. Maybe, you know, just, just pick one thing and see if you can take care of that one thing over the next 10 years or so and gradually work your way. He would never have done that. I would have been crazy to say it. Rather, the reformers wanted God to regulate the church through the scriptures. They wanted the sacraments to be administered rightly. They wanted the government of the church to be set in order. They wanted regulative worship. So Calvin, after setting forth all of the evils and the remedies to those evils of false worship in his book, he then pleads, this is what he says, quote, for reformation required without delay. That's what he was about. Many would have desired to see him silenced on the issue since they would have been creating this big uproar in the church. But Calvin defends himself by demonstrating that such a peace, this kind of compromise, this kind of rubbing shoulders with people in order to just placate them and keep them in the pews or keep things in the status quo, he said that such a peace is devoid of reformed and is really a false peace. Quote, Luther said, it is a cloak that covers evil. And to rail against Calvin and the other reformers, such as Luther, who Calvin mentions in that work of the necessity of reforming the church, is really to rail against God himself, since these reformers were simply following the scriptures, really following the warrants that were set down in the scriptures. Calvin says, quote, in a corruption of sound doctrine so extreme, in a pollution of the sacrament so nefarious, in a condition of the church so deplorable, those who maintain that we ought not have felt so strongly would have been satisfied with nothing less than some kind of tolerance by which we should have betrayed the worship of God, the glory of Christ, the salvation of men, the entire administration of the sacraments, and the government of the church. So he says, how can you possibly think about some kind of compromise in that way? He says, quote, There is something spacious in the name of moderation, and tolerance is a quality which has a fair appearance and seems worthy of praise. But the rule with which we must observe at all hazards is never to endure patiently that the sacred name of God should be assailed 
with impious blasphemy. That his eternal truth should be suppressed by the devil's lies. That Christ should be insulted, his holy mysteries polluted, unhappy souls cruelly murdered, and the church left to writhe in extremity under the effect of a deadly wound. This would not be meekness, but indifference about the things to which all others ought to be postponed. He says when people are about a gradual reformation in that way, he says that's indifference. They don't care. Such deceitful and disloyalty to the Word of God and subsequently to God Himself, he says, cannot be tolerated. Now, where do they pull this? They pull this out of the air? They didn't pull this out of the air. Instead, in the Scriptures, they followed the biblical principles of the scriptural law of worship. There's a couple of scriptures that speak heartily to this. Leviticus 10.3, 1 Samuel 15.22, Matthew 15.9. Calvin goes to great lengths to take these scriptures and demonstrate that all of the church, all of the doctrine in the church, the church life, ecclesiastical rule, discipline, sacraments, theology are all regulated. Leviticus 10.3 demonstrates this when it says, quote, And Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. Now remember, this was said in the context of Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, on the first day of worship, offering up the first sacrifice, were struck down and killed because they added something to the worship service that God had not told them to do so. God never said not to do it. He told them what He wanted them to do, but they added something extra in and they offered strange fire on the altar and He killed them for it. God, through Moses, comforts Aaron with the words that I just read. And the text said, and so Aaron held his peace. God's right. My sons were wrong. The worshiper will sanctify the Lord in his worship to him, or God will sanctify himself in judgment against the worshiper. 1 Samuel 15.22 says, quote, Then Samuel said, Has the Lord a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. In that particular instance, Saul had taken it upon himself to do what he wanted in worshiping God without the sanction of God or the help of Samuel. And so the rebuke is given. God disdains self-imposed worship offered by selfish hearts. And then we have Matthew 15:9, And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Here the Lord Jesus explains that men will replace the true worship of the church with that which is expedient or satisfying to themselves. Jesus says that that kind of worship, which is really vanity, it's a waste of time. It brings condemnation. God must be sanctified, set apart, regarded as holy, honored with the right heart and right sacrifices, and worshipped in the context of His prescriptions. Not the vain self-flattery, uh, a famous Reformation term, the vain self-flattery of man-made will worship. So Calvin spent a great amount of time explaining those. And then also Colossians 2.23, which we read, which things have indeed a show of wisdom in 
will worship or your own worship or your own ideas of worship. Will worship is that which is fabricated and implemented instead of true worship. It's devised by men. It seems good, looks good, attracts a lot of people. But it's false worship and it causes a rift between the worshiper and the Lord. Experience would never dictate worship. Rather, the Word of God is the only rule by which worship should be implemented. So Luther's mind was set ablaze when he understood what the Word of God said in salvation and justification and grace. And Calvin's mind was equally set ablaze. And Calvin and Luther opted for immediate change. The Scriptures call us to repent. That's immediate change. Most of the kings of Israel and Judah didn't follow his word. It's terrible. You keep reading over and over again. You say, when will these guys get it? And he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And he caused the people to sin. And he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Solomon did pretty good in the beginning. But then in the end, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Over and over again. Josiah's account was very different, wasn't it? The moment that that regenerate mind and heart came into contact with God's Word, he changed everything. He knocked down Baal, knocked down Ashtoreth, took out the altars, killed the priests, did everything that was necessary so that God would be glorified. Jesus began his public ministry by preaching, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's how he began. He didn't begin with God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. We don't find that anywhere. In John 2, 14 to 17, we have this account. This was the first thing he did. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. Now, take the modern evangelical church. Send them back in time next to Jesus. They're standing there at the temple. Jesus has in his mind what he's going to do. The modern evangelical has in his mind what he's going to do. What would they have done? They would have never done what Jesus did. They would have set up a booth next to the other vendors. And they would have become their friends. And they would have attempted to win them over to the truth over a course of time, maybe by identification, going out to lunch, whatever it happened to be. Jesus, on the other hand, drove these men out immediately with a whip. Why? Why the contrast that way? Because Christ had an unmitigated zeal for the truth of the word, and he desired to see true worship instituted. Immediately. Christ overturned the accepted manner of worship in merchandising in the temple to demonstrate the zeal or fervor of spirit for the worship of God. Think about the first gospel, Mark. Immediately he went out. Immediately he was brought here. Immediately the spirit pushed him into the wilderness. Immediately he went to the next. The gospel's filled with immediates over and over and over again. There was this urgency about what was going on there. Reformation for Christ was immediate and used a strategy to overthrow the status quo. He didn't go into the church and change it. Isn't that an interesting point? Jesus took 
12 disciples, of which even one in a small church like that was a betrayer, and built up his church next to or alongside of the corrupt church. In cleansing the temple, we see a departure from the false status of worship to a recreation of the full reality of worship in the church that Christ came to build. Jesus didn't have time to waste. And in the course of three years, taught his disciples to turn the world upside down. That's how Luke records it. These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. How do you turn the world upside down quickly? For the modern church, there are so many lessons for us to heed as a result of the way the reformers mimic the way that the biblical picture works of immediately, not gradually, implementing the truth that they learn. I think we would all agree that prudence in implementation is necessary. But when the fundamentals of the faith are overthrown and reformation surrounding those fundamentals are neglected, that is where we say it is intolerable. We can't have a gradual reformation in acquiescing to the ignorance that may be in our own lives or in the church. The Word of God, as we know, is the only rule for faith and practice in the church where Christ is the head. Listen to what the Westminster Confession says. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by Himself and so limited by His own revealed will that He may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in Holy Scripture. And that parallels, or rather, Christ, his, uh, uh, Calvin's argument is paralleled that way in the necessity of reforming the church where he says to take away or add from prescribed worship is sin. We can't do that. Worship in every area. How the church works. It would be wise for us to imitate Josiah and Luther and Calvin. Oh yes, and Jesus. It would be wise for us to imitate them. Because compromising is really a lie. The moment that you take a truth and turn it into a half-truth, in whatever way you think you could do that, it's always going to be a whole lie. It's intolerable. It's intolerable both for the people of God, we who may be deceived as a result of being taught something wrong. Imagine back, imagine back maybe when you were first converted and all of those teachings now that you had to jettison as a result of just not knowing the truth. And wouldn't it have been nice if you had a godly minister whom Job says is one in a thousand to teach you the things of God and to reconcile you with God that way. The teachings of the Word. That you wouldn't have had to gone through all of the crazy things that you might have gone through and learning about all of these wrong things about Jesus or about God or being in maybe a cult or being in a false church somewhere. Can you, can you, remember, you remember that time and how those things became sweet to you as a result of learning the truth in comparison to all those old things and how you would never trade those now if wild horses would drag them out of you, couldn't do it? Imagine Luther and Calvin being in the midst of the Reformation and saying, well, just compromise a little. They couldn't do it. Gradual Reformation in that way would have been intolerable for them. They wanted to see 
Ra- it was, you know why it was radical change? You know why they wanted to see that happen? It's because they wanted to see the truth of the word of God stand in the midst of the people. And the church was so corrupt that it had to be, it could only have been, radical change. But the truth is what we need. So we should pray that true biblical reformation would affect the church, the home, the workplace, all of society for the glory of the great King, Jesus Christ and His kingdom. And we should never tolerate just believing a little bit of the Word or being a little sanctified in our own life. Does God want us to be a little sanctified? These things apply directly to us. The great reforms of what we remember during this month of Reformation Month are things that apply directly to us because they take the biblical principles and place them upon us and say, how how much do these things mean to you in your daily life? It doesn't have to be a worldwide change. We don't have to turn the world upside down. But as we believe and understand the truths of God, we must implement them so that our lives would continually be sanctified before the Lord Jesus Christ, which is what they wanted. That's what Luther did. It's what Calvin did. It's the Reformers did. And there were a lot of Reformers. They were the most popular, but there were a lot of them. And they all came to these same conclusions. Once they looked at the Word, they wanted the Word to be in the heart and the mind of the people that they preached to, in our hearts and our minds even today. It's never going to change, but the Word is always going to make us a little uncomfortable because we're fallen and we have to deal with the fall. Dealing with the fall is hard because in every area of our being, mind, heart, soul, physical, we're affected by it. And the Word is demonstrating the holiness of God. It tells us to conform to it. And that's hard without the Spirit. Calvin and Luther knew that unless you can convince me otherwise, there's no other way to do it. It's only by the Scriptures. It's only by standing upon them. We can't change things just because they're hard. We can't gradually go into not lying just because not lying is hard and it's easier to lie than not lie. Or it's easier to commit adultery because it's fun than not. We, we can't take the commandments and do that to them. We can't do that with worship. We can't do that with discipline. We can't do that with the way we govern the church. We can't do that with any doctrine that is easily understood. That's why Josiah, once he was placed in confrontation to the law of God, there was nothing else he could do but conform to it because he knew God was holy. And this is what the Reformers knew as well. And they could not tolerate in any way, shape, or form something gradual taking place in the church. Wouldn't it be nice if right now we could all snap our fingers and be instantly sanctified completely and totally? Wouldn't that be nice? We pray the prayer, right? Jesus gave us that prayer that His will is done perfectly in heaven but we have to pray that it's done perfectly here by us. The saints and the angels in heaven do His word perfectly. Wouldn't it be nice to snap our fingers and instantly be zapped to be perfect, without sin, perfectly holy, but God doesn't work that way. He doesn't do that with us here. It's not magical snapping of the fingers, suddenly all of your sins are forgiven in terms of some kind of Romanistic, go into the confessional and do a couple of things and your life is going to be a bed of roses. It doesn't work that way. Jesus Christ's robe of righteousness placed around us makes us perfectly accepted before God. We could not be more accepted now 
than tomorrow, than we were two weeks ago, than we will be 50 years from now. But he does put us in this world in which we have to deal with the fall. And our minds and our hearts are not given over to God as much as we would like. We would like the remnants of the old man never to pop its ugly head again. But you know, it does. And it does daily. And God works us through these things in order for us, through all of those providences, to be conformed into the image of Christ, which is Romans 8. But those things won't ever happen if the truth of how he wants us to go about those things is compromised. And that is what the reformers understood. Reformation, that change that was supposed to happen, that is why they stayed on the straight and narrow path that way. They wanted those things to work in our lives to the best of our ability. I like to read books, but I don't like to waste my time reading books that are just okay. Life is too short to read the okay books. I want to read the best books that I could read. In the same way, I think about my sanctification. We should think about our sanctification that way. I want to be as sanctified as I can be. So when, when the word, when the sandpaper of the word tells me that I should do this instead of that, I need to pray for the Holy Spirit's help. So as the reformers thought, about reforming everything in the church. That happens on an individual level. They can't just preach to the pews. They can't just tell the pews that these things... It's not a building that they were preaching to. It was people in the church who were being changed by the grace of God and the gospel of Christ as a result of their unwavering and unswerving commitment to the Word. And if we have that, then you and I have the exact same thing that Luther and Calvin had. And we should then be intolerable to those things that would pull us away from the holiness of God and the good things that God promises us. He tells us He will give us everything, every good thing, all these things in Romans 8 that contribute to our salvation and our sanctification. But we must be as excited about those doctrines as these men were. And the Holy Spirit will help us do that so that When somebody comes to us and tells us, well, it's okay for us to change this in worship. This is what we do in our church. Or it's okay that we we don't really need to understand all that Lord's Supper stuff. We, You know, you take the bread, you drink the wine, you're done, you go. This is the stuff we do in church. Those things should be abrasive to us in the opposite way. That we would say, we want to hold steadfastly to the Word. Those things are very important. And it clues us into the work that God is doing in our life as we continually become more and more sensitive to the reality of how important those things really are. And the more time we spend in the Scriptures, the more time we spend studying, the more time we spend in prayer and all of the means of grace, the greater that we will also see that gradual reformation would be intolerable to us as well. We take some of those things away. Think about Reformation month this month. No doubt, the elders and pastors here will probably preach a few more times and a few more things on those particular areas. But it's an exciting time to be reminded every year about what God did through ordinary men, through sinful men, and changed the world as a result. We have those same things in this book right here. 
those very same truths, those very same ideas. So even for us, gradual reformation should be intolerable to us. We want more of God, more of Christ. We want to say with David, my cup overflows. The reformers were able to say that. Are we able to say that? Let's pray and ask God to bless these thoughts today. Lord, we do thank you that by your Spirit you have changed our hearts, changed our minds, and we see things in a different light. We thank you that you have imparted to us your Word. We thank you that we have it in our hands and we can carry it under our arms and we can walk down the street with it in our country. We pray, O Lord, that you would help us not to neglect it, that we might desire it and the reformation of our life, the reformation of our church, the reformation of our towns, our workplaces, our country, even the world, again, so that it might be said that the world is turned upside down again. That these truths that are being so thrown by the wayside and not being thought of, we ask, Lord, that you would cause them to be sweet to us. That as they were sweet to people like Luther and Calvin and Wycliffe and Whitfield and Edwards and all of these people that you used in the past. So now, O oh God, that you would use us, no matter how great or small, that we would be excited to see you reform our lives and all of the spheres around us that we live in. We so ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves 
would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.